collaboration. It's really an awesome thing. It helps us spread ideas, encourage new ways of thinking, and ultimately generates the best results for humanity, which is one of our big goals as young professionals in energy. So, as mentioned in our latest release, we're encouraging young professionals in energy from other chapters to help us co-host. If you have an expert, leader, or executive you'd like to learn from, then please reach out and we'll make it happen. In this episode, Jack Whalen from the Calgary chapter of YPE did a fantastic job of interviewing Andrew Leach with me. It was our first collaboration with other YPE chapters and our first international interview. I learned a lot, and hopefully you will too. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Young Professionals in Energy podcast. My name is Mark Heineman, and I'm sitting here in Denver, Colorado. We're on a Zoom call with uh, Jack Whalen and Andrew Leach. Uh, Jack is with YPE Calgary, and he's a mechanical engineer turned uh, attorney up in Calgary. He does all things M&A in, in the energy space, and he's also the corporate secretary and director uh, of the Calgary chapter for Young Professionals in Energy. Our interviewee today is uh, Andrew Leach, uh, who's an energy and environmental economist uh, and the associate professor at the Alberta School of Business, the University of Alberta. Um, he's got a PhD in economics from Queen's University, and we're, we're very thankful to have him today. So, Andrew, Jack, how are you guys doing? Really well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, doing great. Yeah. Andrew, I was hoping to just kind of kick off with uh, a brief background about uh, yourself, your career, and uh, uh, how you came into your current role at the University of Alberta and kind of things that you work on. Sure. So I started out, as you said, in economics and grad school. Before that, more environmental science focused. And my research has always tracked something to do with energy, whether it was climate change modeling in grad school, electricity policy. Then I moved to Alberta and started working more on the intersection of climate change and oil and gas policy. It's hard to avoid when you're when you're here in Alberta. And then more recently moved into doing a lot more work in the law as Canada moved to through a little bit of uh, litigation around the federal government's ability to tax greenhouse gases. So I've I've touched a few different aspects of energy and environmental policy over my career. That's great, Andrew. Yeah, and so we wanted to talk about uh, today some effective emission reduction policies, broadly speaking, for Canada and the U.S. Um, and we also understand you have quite a background as a policymaker. Can you tell us a little bit about that in, uh, in your, as your background in Alberta? Sure. I've had a few chances to be involved in policy development. I think the, the first exposure to it was working with the government of Prime Minister Harper in 2012-13. I spent a year at Environment and Climate Change Canada working on uh, policy for the oil and gas sector. So that was part of that government's sector-by-sector -sector regulatory approach to uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And then in 2015, I advised Alberta's government on developing there what turned into a basically four-pronged climate policy, an economy-wide carbon price and industrial emissions system, and then uh, electricity market policies to phase out coal and ramp in renewables, and as well as the stand-up of an energy efficiency agency. And then since then, I've also acted in advisory roles, mostly for the federal government in, in Canada. Wow, that's an interesting background. And I realize uh, quite a lot of that work also got rolled into Canada's recently upheld constitutionally greenhouse gas pollution pricing act. Yeah, that, that was, I guess, a fun circle for me. The Alberta policy that we developed in 2015 was adopted almost wholesale by the federal government and applied nationally as a federal backstop. The, the legislation you mentioned, the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act, or GGPPA. And then subsequent to that being enacted by the government, it was challenged in uh, in court. Three provinces, Ontario, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, challenged it, and, and that coincided with a sabbatical of mine where I went back to work on a master's in law and focused on exactly the same questions, the federal government's ability to legislate in relation to climate change. And, you know, as, as I guess a, 
whether it's happy coincidence or or signal of being in the right place at the right time, some of my work and work of co-authors was cited by the Supreme Court as part of their uh, anchoring their judgment of upholding the legislation. So it was fun to be in in all parts of it. Yeah, definitely. And congrats on that call out there by the Supreme Court of Canada. I guess, uh, so transitioning to U.S. and Canadian policy, I know recently uh, Biden's leadership Leaders Summit on Climate, I guess the U.S. pledged, you know, a 50 to 52 percent reduction in greenhouse gas emissions from 2005 levels by 2030. Canada has also pledged around a 40 to 45 percent reduction in greenhouse gas emissions over that same period. Just curious from your background, uh, what your thoughts are on these targets, whether they're reasonable um, and also what the current trends seem to indicate. Yeah, I've always been a little bit of a skeptic on targets uh, in the sense that we're trying to find a, it's almost a global pie dividing contest, right? It's like my kids at the kitchen table deciding who gets the largest piece of pie. And one will say the right rule is the oldest gets it. One will say, well, it was just my birthday, so I get it. Uh, They can come up with rules that justify sort of any dividing outcome. And I feel like that's a lot of what we've done historically with targets. And Canada's always ended up on the wrong end of the stick. We we do this thing where we have, and it's happened at Kyoto, it happened a little bit at Copenhagen, it happened with Paris, where there's a lot of, of domestic thought that goes into what are we going to do? What are we going to commit to when we get to this international meeting? And then we go to the international meeting and our entire national climate policy gets reduced to we have to do the same or better than the Americans in percentage terms relative to some arbitrary baseline year. And our leaders, you know, stand side by side with the American presidents, they cheer, they come home, and then they realize, wait a minute, we trade a lot with the U.S. And for us to meet the same targets as them, we're going to need more stringent policy. And so our businesses are in uproar about facing more stringent policies than their American competitors. And so we backslide on our commitments. And that happened in Kyoto. It happened in Copenhagen. Uh, it probably was on pace to happen in Paris with our Paris targets. Uh, in this case, maybe circumstances have, have made it more likely that we'll meet our Paris targets, but we've still also enacted far more stringent policy than the U.S. And so I worry that we've seen that same thing happen again, where President Biden, lots of momentum early in his mandate, you know, very aggressive statements on, on climate action, not backed with policy yet. And Canada is going to sort of follow down that road on the target commitment. We've already got the policy architecture in place. And I think we're going to be back in that world where we're going to be out of step in policy, even though we're sort of close to in step in targets or even being criticized for not having as aggressive a target as, as the U.S. And can you give, give us just a quick overview of why Canada needs stricter policies? when compared to the U.S.? Sure. Well, the the big thing, right, all of these are, these targets are always measured relative to a historic year. And so is, you know, Kyoto was relative to 1990. Since uh, Copenhagen, we've been dealing in mostly relative to 2005 targets between Canada and the U.S. And think of what was going on in 2005 in both countries and what happened since. So in 2005, Canada by 2005, Canada had done a lot to decarbonize its electricity system, and some of that was for economic advantage. It wasn't climate policy, but we had, or for health policy. So we'd been on, we're on the track of phase out coal power in Ontario. We had massive hydroelectric investments in Quebec. We had a massive nuclear build out in Ontario, and all of that led to a much lower carbon electricity system. On the other hand, the U.S. was much more reliant on coal, and. We also had, you know, the U.S. at that point had still a declining oil and gas sector, but we were just starting to exploit the oil sands. And so you take go from 2005 forward to today, both the U.S. and Canada have seen growing oil production, U.S. faster in a production basis than ours, but ours is much more emissions intensive than what's being added in the U.S. So we've added a bunch of oil sands projects. Or if you think in, you know, climate policy terms, we were silly to have not had it earlier because then it would appear that we didn't have as much of a road to travel to meet the same reduction. And we'd already decarbonized our electricity system. The U.S., you have the, the natural gas boom that, that followed on the back of the fracking revolution. And all of a sudden, the best alternative for power gen is natural gas and, of course, the progress of renewables. So U.S. 
power system is decarbonizing almost without any active action from the government. And in some cases, we saw the, the Trump government try to step in and, and almost slow that process down, create a better market for coal, right? We're trying to keep coal in the grid. Uh, and so that's that's really that the oil and the power sector things are what's driving the differences that the U.S. is just having a lot more happen on the power side with no policy or limited policy. And they're not having quite the same emissions driver from their oil and gas sector as we had uh, in ours. Andrew, I'm going to throw you kind of a quick curveball, but yeah. um, do you think that the U.S. Uh, and the fracking revolution and utilizing a bunch of cheap natural gas now is a good outcome for lower emissions? Or do you think it's really just a sh short-term outcome that, okay, we'll have lower emissions than coal over the next 30 to 40 years, but uh we really would be better off if we had just transitioned to nuclear now. I mean, what's what's your perspective? Ooh, you know, I, I didn't think you were going to go to the nuclear side of things, but I think I would answer that, yes, it's good for the first reason that you laid out and, and that it's given us a little bit more time where we're not facing that explicit trade-off between really high electricity prices and really low carbon emissions. And I'd sort of put nuclear in that basket. I mean, we look at what's happening with... Um, What's the Tennessee or the, um, the Vogel? Vogel, that's the word yeah. is on the tip of my tongue, right? But look what's happening there. That's not a low electricity price outcome, right? Somebody's paying really high power prices. Now, it may not be ratepayers, it might be taxpayers, but it's going to be someone. And so I think if, if you think of that at scale, that's got some real challenges. Same thing's true of in Alberta, we wrestled with uh, trying to do a bunch of carbon capture and storage. And I think if natural gas had stayed expensive, what you'd have seen would have been a lot of, in Alberta merchant and in Saskatchewan rate-based investment in large-scale carbon capture and storage. But as what the natural gas change did was it um, made that the best investment in the short term to uh, to mitigate carbon emissions. We've seen coal phase out way faster here than we otherwise would have. And as a bonus, you have a much more flexible grid that can integrate renewables much more easily than would have been the case if we had a lot of legacy coal with CCS in, in the system. So, uh, you know, nuclear, I think it, it's going to have its spots, absolutely, in a low carbon future. I think it'd be wrong to, to pull it out of the system or to write it off as not a viable part of the, the future. But I'm not sure that I'd say, you know, we should have just gone wholesale with big nuke investments early on. So circling back to those targets, do you are there any other better alternatives that you see to track progress? I mean, it makes sense to somewhat set an aspirational goal, but is there ways we can, let's say, measure the year over year rate of curtailment or perhaps on a GDP basis? You know, I've always been a big fan of just compare policies. So yeah. if I look at, and this was what we did even in designing the Alberta process was within Canada to say, if the same emission saving investment puts more dollars in your pocket in Alberta than in another province, that's the best indication that we can have that Alberta is taking these issues more seriously. If an increase in emissions takes dollars off your bottom line at a particular rate, and it's higher in one jurisdiction than the other, so there's a higher penalty for incremental emissions, that's a pretty good proxy for who's taking this really seriously. And so I'd love to see that. I'd love to see, uh, you know, I, I often counter the arguments about, about targets to say, you know, is there any jurisdiction in the world where you wouldn't want to see the equivalent of what Canada's done on carbon pricing, on clean fuels regulations, on coal power phase outs, et cetera, uh, compared to what they've done in the last 15 years. I think most people would choose the Canadian policy. And if we could apply that policy everywhere globally or that type of policy, especially the coal phase out, uh, you'd see a massively different picture from a climate change perspective than we see now. Yeah, definitely. I guess just on the world stage, when you're making announcements, you know, a 50% or 40% reduction, it's just an easier one-liner to say, rather than here's our full built-out policy yeah, but I don't think you need a, a full built-out policy, right? So we're going to put a price on carbon and we're going to phase out coal-fired power. It's just as easy to say. The challenge is that it's it's politically something that you have to do right away 
as opposed to something where there's always a modicum of uncertainty looking forward. You know, oh, we might meet our targets, even though anybody with a, a very, even the simplest greenhouse gas emissions model would be able to say that's likely or it's unlikely. There's always uncertainty there. Uh, but when you say we're going to phase out coal power by X year, you got to start doing something today. You got to have something in the system that is making that the case. You've got to pull a regulatory record together. You have to have um, a mechanism to remove plant licenses or approvals or whatever the case may be. And you got to start doing that right away. And that's part of why I've always disliked targets is it is, as you said, it's a one line thing. It's easy to say. And I can go and commit to whatever I want, but nothing's real until you put policy in. So, Andrew, I have a—I feel like a really, really dumb, ignorant American. Uh, for, for people like me, could you mind uh, just trying to give a brief overview of of what Canada's thought about uh, carbon emission policies? And um, I don't know if you can summarize it quickly or dumb it down for a simpleton like me. Sure. Uh, so. I mean, the big letter headline policies that the Canada has that matter is economy-wide carbon pricing in a number of provinces. So I guess maybe take a step back and, and Canada, like the United States, is an agglomeration of subnational jurisdictions. And so same as in the U.S., you have some things that are provincial, some things are federal in Canada, some things are state and some things are federal in, in, in the U.S., and so we have some provincial policies, uh, notably in British Columbia, for example, that put an economy-wide price on carbon. Uh, we have different types of carbon pricing policies. Ontario, or Alberta has had carbon pricing for a long time. Quebec is a partner with California in their uh, West WCI emissions trading market. So lots of stuff going on at the provincial level. And then more recently, the Canadian federal government basically came in and said, we have our carbon pricing architecture here, and it looks a lot like the Alberta one. And we'll impose this in any province that doesn't have a provincial regime that's at least equivalent to the federal one. And so that was put in place in what, 2017, 2018, I guess it came into effect. And that's the piece of legislation that just went through the court challenge that, that Jack referred to. And so now you have on an economy-wide basis, basically call it 75 to 80% of emissions in Canada will have a point of sale or point of emissions carbon price attached to them. And then there are some other related policies that are similar to those that we have in the US. We, uh, we have biofuel blending requirements at a national level. We're imposing a clean fuel standard that looks a little bit like the low carbon fuel standard out of California. Uh, so some some other policy architecture there that people will be familiar with. And then some fiscal policies. We have a different capital cost allowance for renewable energy projects. I'm just picking and choosing a couple here. Uh, we just put in or proposed at least a new tax treatment for carbon capture and storage. It looks a lot like the 45Q tax treatment in the US for uh, investment tax credit for those types of investments. So, you know, it's, it's not a one policy story. But uh, that overlapping Fed prov and, and really, I've referred to it a lot as kind of a defense in depth on policies. We have carbon pricing, we have coal-fired power regulations, we have uh, accelerated capital cost allowance for renewables, and all of those overlap and create a decarbonizing environment in our electricity sector. And the actual mechanics for how the carbon pricing is executed, I mean, is that just people are paying a tax uh, for on a per volume or per mass amount emitted. Yes. So, so it's natural gas power plant, you pay a tax per uh, emissions. And what about like for gasoline? I mean, yeah, so we've got both the federal system and the Alberta provincial system are uh, segregated between large emitters to so large point source emissions like power plants and uh, con consumer decentralized emissions. So the federal, I'll use the federal policy as an example and then go from there. So the, the federal policy has a fuel charge. So at the gas station on the pump price, there's a, a carbon tax attached to that or your natural gas distributor that's feeding gas into your home heating system. You're going to have a carbon tax on your gas bill for that. Uh, if you're a large emitter, like a large natural gas power plant, you're in a more regulatory context. You're uh, um, 
declaring or reporting your emissions based on your fuel use. You're not paying at the point of your purchase of the fuel. You're reporting to the federal government on your emissions, your electricity generation. And that uh, industrial pricing system has a combination of allocation of emissions credits or tax credits. So for an electricity generator, uh, you get an allocation based on how much free emissions based on how much electricity you produce. And then effectively, you end up paying a tax on the residual over and above that allocation of credits. Or if you're hyper efficient or renewable source or what have you, you may be able to generate credits that you can sell to another operation. BC is more of a pure carbon tax. If you're uh, operating in that province, you're paying a tax on emissions regardless of the size of your facility. So there's a little bit of difference between the different different systems. Gotcha. So it's additional revenue for the federal government. And I I suppose the provincial government also. is Are those funds typically reallocated to further reducing emissions? Or does it just kind of go into the federal budget and, you know, gets reallocated however, you know, the budget is set up? Great question. And again, a split answer. So on the federal side, the federal legislation has a, a requirement that all of the funds collected be returned to the provinces in which they were collected. And so the way that's done right now is a, a direct lump sum rebate to consumers. And your rebate depends on what province you're in and how large your household is and whether you're an urban or rural household. So a rural household in a province with emissions intensive electricity will get a larger lump sum rebate than an urban household in a low carbon province. Uh, but it's not tied to your actual consumption. The BC carbon tax has uh, uh, their sort of recycling of funds, so to speak, is through lower income taxes. So they've got the pay on what you earn or what you burn, not what you earn sort of model. So it's... Uh, but both of them are predominantly funds back to consumers directly or through the tax system. There is a little bit of, of withholding in the federal system for investments in low carbon infrastructure. And the same thing is true, for example, in Alberta's industrial carbon pricing system. Those funds all go into an earmarked fund that goes to invest in emissions reduction opportunities. So we've, we've kind of tried all the systems. I think when we were warming up for this, I said you know, there's a lot that the U.S. can learn from Canada because we've tried a lot of these things, right? We know where the, the challenges are. We know what some of the political obstacles are or some of the things that, you know, for me as an economist, I'd taken for granted that maybe uh, either politicians or consumers or pundits won't necessarily be willing to just sort of nod their heads and say, okay, that makes sense. And do you see uh, any uh, interprovincial jurisdictional favorites or do you have any favorites on uh, the carbon pricing or how all that revenue is reallocated? I guess I'm, I'm biased in that I designed the Alberta one. So I have to say I like the Alberta one. But <laughs> you got to love your baby. Yeah. You got to love it. Yeah. But, but, you know, the, the other thing is the, the design depends on where you are, right? In 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 BC at the time, there was a lot of push to lower income taxes. There was a lot of push to act on climate change. Provinces around them were uh, cutting taxes. So there was a competitiveness reason to do that. And that's what worked for them. And in Alberta, you know, we needed a system that we could go to the international community and the national community and say, you know, we've got a carbon price that is credible, that applies to our large emitting sectors, but we have a lot of our emissions are large point source emissions in trade exposed sectors. So design to, to that made a lot of sense. You go to another province, there's going to be different considerations. So I don't think there's a there's no one size fits all. This is the right system. Uh, and then, you know, when you come to, again, allocation of revenues, that to me, I'm, I'm, not, not, I'm not a fan of earmarks. So I wouldn't say you want to have something where the amount we should spend on emissions reduction activities is somehow correlated to how many, how much emissions tax we collect, right? We could certainly have those be disconnected. Either we want to overspend on emissions reductions and abatement, or we want to use quote unquote, use carbon tax revenues uh, for a bunch of different purposes. So I'm not a huge fan of the earmarks. I'm a much bigger fan of lump sum 
if you want a lump sum rebate back to consumers, or again, if depending on your jurisdiction, if the priority is get some efficiency into your other tax system, that's a really nice use of revenue that doesn't end up with governments just out shopping to try to find something to spend money on. Is that possibly because the correlation between how much revenue is collected and where it's being spent isn't always one-to-one or the value of the dollar or the value of the revenue? Yeah, they, they, there's no reason to expect, for example, that there aren't some great new energy R&D opportunities in jurisdictions that already have low emissions or that a jurisdiction that has really high emissions necessarily has high value or high role for government subsidized R&D or government direct subsidies for emissions reduction. So I just think there's no necessary correlation there. And, And in the same ways, we don't explicitly earmark cigarette taxes for treatment of lung cancer, right? We're going to, and we're not going to say, well, you don't get treated because we didn't collect enough uh, cigarette taxes this year. We do implicitly in things like the tobacco settlements, the the cost of treating the victims of lung cancers and related conditions is part and parcel of that, but it's not that explicit earmark in the same way. Yeah, the U.S. doesn't have a comparable carbon tax that Canada does. Um, so is, are there things or methods that you th- can think that there are policies that the U.S. could employ that uh, might be beneficial in, in the U.S. space that our uh, lessons learned that we could apply? Yeah, definitely. And you've seen some of the same, some of the stuff we just talked about has already come up in the U.S., right? The The referenda in Washington state being, I think, one primary example where, you know, when one was proposed that was not, the funds weren't used to uh, fund emissions reduction investments, well, there was a campaign mounted against the carbon price on that basis. And when we changed it around, there's a campaign mounted against it on another basis. And, and I think one of the one of the things that, that I've taken away from being in the trenches on this is, um, you know, it's, maybe it's, a, it's too internet focused, but it's beware the concern trolls. And, you know, you'll definitely see, and I think you're seeing it already in in the U.S., that when a carbon price isn't on the table, everyone's excited about it, right? The oil and gas industry, the electricity industry is like, well, we don't want these really inefficient regulations. You guys should definitely consider a carbon price. And and a carbon price has all of these and will line up a row upon row upon row of economists who will tell you everything about how it's the least damaging to the economy and all of these sorts of things. But as soon as a carbon price is on the table, well, all of a sudden regulations are going to become a lot more attractive and they're going to be simpler and they're going to be easier to track and they're going to be more certain. And they're going to have all of the advantages of regulations that will be brought forward as arguments against a carbon price. So, you know, one of the things that I think we saw in Canada was, you know, a willingness for, in this case, for the federal government, but previously for um, the governments of Alberta to to basically put something on the table and to get it through legislation. And then you see that it becomes much more challenging to remove, right? Because then it's it's not, is this better than a status quo? It's, is the new policy better than the policy that we have right now? And so that was that was true in Alberta when, you know, carbon pricing program was put in it was, you know, it was not stringent enough. It wasn't meeting Alberta's targets, but it provided a legislative architecture. It provided everything was done. When we went in in 2015 to try to redesign it, it was easier to do because that legislative mechanism was already there. We had to make a few changes to existing legislation. But when governments campaigned against it, there was also the, well, now you're campaigning against something that all of the industry knows they're used to, they may be benefited from some of the funds and it becomes hard. It, once it's ingrained, it becomes harder to campaign against once some of the uncertainties have been revealed. So, you know, I think that the, the big thing is you know, when we've seen it done and, and done successfully in Canada, it hasn't been a long drawn out policy process where, you know, we spent time with a lot of all the alternatives and, and weighed and, and measured and everything else. 
the big movements, whether it was Alberta in 2007 or federally in 2015 or BC, it was, you know, we're going to do this. We're committed to it. This is the thing we're doing and we're going forward with that. And I think in, in all three of those cases, it's worked well when it's, uh, I think, been, been put out as something where we're going to think about this for a long time publicly and have a wide open discussion about all the alternatives that are available to us that concern trolling just wins the day every single time that there's a there's sort of a pox on all your houses effect that comes down on any possible greenhouse gas policy because they all have disadvantages yeah so the recommendation i'm hearing is a uh, uh, nike slogan right just do it just do it and don't worry about the don't worry about all of the details because the details can be can be adapted over time and just do it but beware like there are going to be there are going to be opponents of this that are going to be engaging in less than um i'll come back to the concern trolls beware the concern trolls yeah so yeah it recommend recommendations just do it but when i think about the the challenge or when i think about carbon pricing um it's kind of comparable to okay well you host an event and uh the difference between you know, making the event free and $5 or a, a marginal cost uh, is relatively small. Mm -hmm. uh, but if but the free event, a lot more people are, are happy to engage in. And, and right now, carbon emissions is in the free category. Yep. And so allocating any cost to it, no matter how low, is a challenge, right? And the thing that I struggle with is uh, how do we decide, you know, what price to allocate to it? Uh, how, how do we price that in correctly? Where do you yeah. start? Uh, you know, and in some ways, Canada's views on this have been driven by a combination of history and to some degree the U.S. So, you know, for a long time, the magic number of carbon pricing in Canada was $15. And that came about, I don't know where, the, I know where the initial number was spoken and it was Prime Minister Chrétien coming back from, uh, Kyoto after having committed to a really aggressive target and he assured Canadian manufacturers that their price of carbon would not exceed $15 a ton and you know that number basically seemed to take on a life of its own and that was the benchmark of carbon pricing for the next however many years it was now that was the acceptable it's okay number anything that risked going beyond that was you know challenging and that's where I think I remember correctly, the BCs came in at 10 and rose to 15. I'll, I'd have to look at that, but Alberta certainly came in at 15. And that was sort of the ballpark. And now we've seen those goalposts get moved pretty quickly uh, by, you know, so BC, when we did our policy in Alberta, BC had already raised their policy to $30 a ton. So $30 was a natural benchmark for us. If you're looking at a US policy, presumably now the Canadian policy provides a lot of information. We, we can see what an economy looks like at a $40 a ton carbon price by looking just north of the border and looking at, you know, where different countries obviously living slightly different lifestyles. But if you want to know what a carbon price world in Denver would look like, looking at Calgary is probably not a bad, uh, bad place to look, right? If you're yeah. in Southwestern Ontario, or sorry, if you're in uh, the Midwest, you can look at Southwestern Ontario and get a pretty good idea of what your life under carbon pricing would be like. And and probably most people who have visited Canada have noticed that our economy has not stopped. We still do most of the things that people do on the other side of the border. It's not it's not like a level change when you cross the border because all of a sudden we're in a world with carbon pricing and and such things. I think that's really important. Yeah, I think I think that's a big concern for a lot of people is that if the world doesn't collectively adopt a carbon price, then you fall into this trap or uh, possibility that your country is less competitive because other countries aren't charging uh, yeah, their, their consumers and their power, power producers that tax. Yeah. Um, and ultimately, you know, if the goal is reduce emissions globally, we only have one atmosphere. So all humans must abide. Right. How do we how do we reconcile that? Yeah. You know, I think there's a couple of pieces there. I think one of them would be especially for your audience. Right. People who have 
recently finished school, have taken on new careers, have potentially moved to different places, stop and think about whether you asked what the carbon policy was in the jurisdiction you were moving to. Or talk to some people with startups and ask them if the carbon policy influenced their decision to start up in that location. Where was the carbon tax in your calculations? And you know, when you think about how carbon pricing is framed from a competitiveness perspective, it's framed as almost a light switch, either you're on or you're off. But we have a lot of differences. I mean, state income tax would be a great example. Right? If we believe that ta- most of the stories on tax competitiveness, there's no reason why every firm in the US isn't located in Wyoming. Right? If all that mattered was income taxes, there would be nobody in California and there'd be lots of people in Wyoming. But there's a reason why uh, there are still people in California. And that's true in Canada as well. If I'm looking at locating my business in Alberta versus locating my business in Manitoba, I have different electricity prices, I have different income taxes, I have different sales taxes, I have different housing costs, I have different healthcare systems, I have different mosquito levels, I have all of these things that are going to matter to me and the carbon price. And so it's going to be one of a whole factor of things and the, the, the investments for which a carbon price of $30 a ton makes or breaks your deal is one that was probably marginal in the first place and one that was maybe not compatible with a world acting on climate change anyway, it was a bet on the status quo. And and so I think one of the things, and I've got another bit to answer your question, but I think one of the things I'd like to see people change the discourse on is when someone starts talking about competitiveness, right? When a company comes out and says, we're not competitive under this carbon pricing regime, the first question should be, why are people holding your stock? And if that's not the first question you're asking a company who says, I can't afford to operate under, a, let's call it a $30 a ton carbon price. That means you got a whole lot of downside risk, right? That your whole company is a bet on pricing car- on carbon externalities continuing to be free. And I don't know if I want to make that bet or not. The, the other thing I was going to add on is, is the thing you know, that I noticed early on in, in dealing with corporate entities and and it's no longer the case in Alberta because we've been living under this for a while. But carbon price of $30 per ton doesn't mean a lot to people, right? Because they're not paying for tons at all. So the fact that they're free right now means I have no concept of my emissions. And that's true in corporate America as well. And and our corporate Canada was, uh, I sat around a boardroom table at one point and gave, gave me a talk to a board of a major producer in Canada. And I handed out cards and I said, write down what you think your company's uh, oil production footprint is, tons per barrel of production emissions. And I got estimates that were three orders of magnitude. So, you know, for some of those members, if you took their number, a $30 a ton carbon price applied on their production was existential for their company. They would have no business with that. For others, it was rounding error. And that was around a board table. And so what's, think of what's what, the real number What's I, how many tons? So like point, point one ton, point one tons per barrel for that operation, which was one of the higher ones in Alberta. But, you know, you'd be like on production emissions anywhere from 0.02 tons per barrel up to 0.1314. Um, maybe a little bit more than that on some of the really emissions intensive stuff. But uh, hmm. so I'm, I'm, but, so, too, so I'm just curious, yeah. is that... <laughs> yeah, so it's it's like the, the best oil sands projects would be 50th percentile globally-ish. Um, the worst ones would be 85th to higher percentile globally. But and is that the, the barrel of oil, is that the tax that just what it takes for them to produce the barrel? That, or? That's just production. Okay. Yeah, so you'd be more like 0. 0.5 yeah. tons, 0.5 to 0. 0.6 tons per barrel if you're doing full... Yeah, well, to uh, yeah, combustion engine, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. My my big concern is, I guess, any manufacturing space that is a heavy industrial user um, or power generation are, are they heavily impacted or disincentivized? You know, I, I think there's been good examples of companies moving away or to lower tax regions. Um, so I, I like your idea of changing or reallocating, you know, reducing taxes in another sector if you're going to tax what you burn. Yeah. 
And, you know, in some sectors, power sectors are a really neat example, right? Think about natural gas prices in the power sector. So if you look and you say for an individual natural gas user, would you like to have lower natural gas prices? Their answer would almost unconditionally be yes, I'd like to pay lower natural gas prices. But if I'm a power gen company, do I want there to be systematically lower natural gas prices? Not necessarily, because if my portfolio is relatively emissions efficient, then the price is determined by the heat rate of the least efficient plant that's operating. And I end up with a little bit of a a higher margin on my more efficient units. So uh, you look at, you know, look at the Northeast and and what happened to natural gas power uh, plant margins during the natural gas boom. Right. It wasn't like all of a sudden these the power prices stayed the same and all of these producers were just making windfall profits. The power prices fell with the gas price. And because it's set by the least efficient firm, the power price falls a lot when the gas price goes down. And so that's that's true to an extent on carbon pricing as well. Right. And if you put a carbon price in in place, the carbon price effect on the electricity price at a wholesale market is going to be determined by the emissions intensive facilities. And so if you are operating, you know, even in Alberta's market, for example, an, an ultra efficient combined cycle natural gas plant or even better, a renewable plant, you're getting the benefit of any of the uplift that the carbon price brings into that power market because the carbon price is uplifting your competitors cost more than it's uplifting yours. And I guess that's one of the reasons why like this broad based carbon pricing is really one of the best methods um, to curtail um, greenhouse gas emissions. Now, other than carbon pricing, are there any other policies that Canada and the U.S. can, the U.C. can be actively pursuing? Or do you think anything has been overlooked on that front? Yeah, I think the... The big sectors, transportation, power gen, industrial use, the reason why economists tend towards carbon pricing, I'd say there's there's a couple of big reasons. The, the, The one that I would focus on the most is the fact that it rewards innovation, right? If you're either somebody that has innovated or you have an innovative new technology, putting that carbon price in the system means that all of a sudden you've got a great new market for that product. So... If I'm a Calgary company with a uh, methane venting solution to reduce emissions out of uh, natural gas pipeline systems, for example, or natural gas production systems, I now all of a sudden, if the U.S. has a carbon price, now that's baked in a huge market for my technology amongst everybody that's operating oil and gas production in the U.S. Because now they know I can pay you know X dollars a ton over here, or I can buy this incineration unit that reduces my emissions and that now all of a sudden has a real market value i can assess the internal rate of return i can go to the bank and borrow money to put this into my facility it becomes real regulation is can do all of these things but regulation tends to have a lot of those tests that say the people who are forced to do the work are the ones who can and we're going to let the people who can't uh, slide. We're going to not force you to do something that is economically infeasible for you to do. And so, you know, the, the pricing puts the mechanism in the market and kind of lets the market figure out who's best positioned to take advantage of it. But, you know, there, there's a whole continuum in there between the historic draconian regulation of just somebody deciding you get to produce and you don't, or you use this technology, you don't. There's a whole class of what are termed flexible regulations. So regulations like the U.S. does for automobiles, where I can flex between producing more of a certain type of vehicle and less of of another type of vehicle to get my corporate average fuel economy down. If I can't get it down, I can buy credits from somebody else. So there's that whole category in the middle of more flexible regulation that I think is ultimately where a lot of players end up. Um, the other thing, you know, to, to keep in mind is not just what are the tools you're using, but how those tools interact with one another. So vehicle regs just made me think of a good example, right? California comes in and they put in really aggressive low emissions vehicle policy. 
what that's doing is it's effectively also creating more, we're selling more low emissions vehicles, California, but all of the manufacturers can take the effective credit from those and use them against vehicle production elsewhere. So by complying with the policy in California, you're actually making it easier for them to comply elsewhere with the corporate average fuel economy standards. So it's not just like, what policy am I using here that I want to worry about, but how does it interact with what all the other policies are? And does it actually, to Mark's point earlier, is it reducing overall emissions or am I just moving emissions around on the chessboard a bit? Yeah, definitely. And even that um, that California example there, the U- U.S. car producers and manufacturers, they all have to elevate their standards just you know to sell cars in California. So naturally, across the board, their emission standards have increased. Yeah, and, and there's a big place for Canada there too, right? So we saw this during the Trump administration where there was a push by the Trump administration to relax some of the vehicle emission standards. And there was there was a push by both Northeast and, and Northwestern California states to kind of go their own way, to put their own, keep their own standards in. And in that kind of a conversation, Canada or some of Canadian provinces are big enough to be a material part of those types of coalitions, right? If you bring another 30 million people or 35 million people under the umbrella of a particular type of vehicle regulation, it doesn't just have to be Canada and the US. It could definitely be you know, the North American West Coast, and that would be a reasonably large vehicle market. The Midwest is a large vehicle market. California, the Pacific Northwest, and Canada is a large vehicle market. And so um, I think we need to look beyond a little bit just what are the two national policies, but how do national, provincial, state policies all interact and create those large spaces where, yeah, it makes sense for a company to innovate and build a new product to fit that market. Now, uh, just changing gears here, I'm a little cognizant of uh, timing, but just into our last topic. So millennials now make up approximately the 50% or just over the majority of the workforce in Canada and the U.S. And there is an increasing demand amongst this demographic for, you know, reasonably balanced emission reduction policies. Um, just from, you know, a young professional standpoint, uh, what are the best methods and how can we get involved in, in this, these policymaking decisions? It, you know, in the policymaking side, I think there are probably three or four good ways to get involved. I mean, one, one of the things that I tell my students a lot is don't sleep on government jobs. Don't forget that they exist. And a lot of times, particularly, you know, business students that I see, they won't necessarily think of a government job as one where you can make a difference, do something interesting, but there's a ton of interesting opportunity, a ton of upward mobility really rapidly, particularly in provincial governments in Canada, uh, that I think is not always on people's radar. Uh, the second thing, just how to get involved in, you know, whether it's emissions reduction in general, I think one of the neat things we're seeing, and one of my colleagues posted this advice today, Tim Weiss on, on Twitter, and he said, you know, it used to be, well, if you wanted to get into renewable energy in Canada, you had to go and find a renewable energy company, right? You want to do renewable electricity, find one of the little specialist niche firms. Now the answer is go work for any company because they're all doing it and they're all going to have to be there. You know, if you want to go and work for any electricity company, they're going to have to build their renewables portfolio, their storage portfolio, et cetera. And then there'll be a policy aspect to that. Uh, and then, you know, I think that the other two uh, you know, you've gone the road of the law. You know, the law is a great place to get engaged in policy formation and policy development. I just spent the day today at the um, at a law and energy and environmental law conference, and I'm teaching a class next year at the University of Alberta in the intersection of energy and environmental law and policy, which I'm really looking forward to. And so I think that's a, a nice avenue if you can push your practice in that way, whether it's within a corporate setting or a not-for-profit setting. And then I guess the last one is like, put your name on a ballot, right? That's the, the or get involved in, in a political campaign. It's not, I haven't been as involved on the partisan politics side, but lots of my friends have, and that's where they've found an opportunity to move policy in a really big hurry. Staff a minister, staff a, um, an MP, et cetera. And you're there, you're at the table in a room that you know many people don't get to be in. 
Well, yeah. And, and even, um, I guess just you made the point of joining any company, basically, even, you know, an oil and gas super major, uh, in Canada, there's, there's recently been, uh, a few recent announcements about, you know, net, net zero by 2050, um, especially by, you know, Canadian Natural, Synovus, Imperial, Meg, Suncor, you know, 90% of our oil sands production will now, uh, you know, ideally be net zero by 2050. So just, you know, being involved in and being a part of uh, the energy and, you know, a private corporation or public, I think is an excellent way to be involved in uh, reducing emissions. So. Uh, absolutely. And, and to me, the the filter on that always is look at where their ESG department is. So if you see, and, and I'll pick Suncor as an example, right? ESG forever has been under operations in Suncor. It's not a marketing unit. It's not an investor relations unit. It's an ops unit. And the more you can see where does that live in the corporate structure, who's the chief sustainability officer? Is it the COO? Is it, you know, where does that focus live in the company? And that'll give you a sense of, of how important your role might be if that's the kind of role you're taking on. Yeah, definitely look at the uh, corporate governance and the internal structure. Excellent points there. That's fantastic. Yeah. Andrew, I guess as we, um, as we, as we wrap up, I like, I like to ask folks a couple questions. Um, and so I've got two more for you. And if Jack has any more, then we can answer all of his also. So number one, uh, is there anything uh, currently in the energy space or climate space that keeps you up at night that, that really bothers you? And then uh, number two, uh, what advice do you have for, for young professionals in energy and in the space, not just in the policy space, but just in general? I think in, in answer to your first one, it's probably the same as what keeps everybody up at night that, you know, we're putting out when, when you look at what we need to do to reach climate change goals, whether they're 1.5C or 2C or net zero or what have you, uh, the road to travel is is long and hard. And I think there's too much uh, oversimplification of the policy challenge and the disruption challenge and everything else. And and and. You know, my hope is that we overcome that by doing more than we're pledging to do right now. But I think, you know, my worry is that we run into a lot of these these policy challenges and we start losing years and years and years and years and make our, our curve ever steeper. So that's that's the thing that, that keeps me up. You know, I think in terms of what advice, I mean, it's back to, to my answer to Jack's question, it's it's follow what follow what's interesting to you. And now almost everything is going to find its way back to climate, right? I keep landing in it. I've, I've tried to not consciously, but I've, I've left climate change or I thought I've left climate change research four or five times. And I keep landing back in it because it is everything now it's whether you're doing banking or you're doing engineering or you're doing finance or your economics and policy, you're going to land in climate change. It's our, probably one of our single biggest economic policy challenges. So uh, just chase what you're good at and you'll end up in climate change. You don't have to chase climate change to end up with a career in it. Andrew, uh, thank you so much for uh, your time today. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we hope to uh, continue the discussion and hope to see some of your work here going forward. Thanks so much to both of you. Great questions. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Andrew. We really appreciate it. All right. Have a great day, everybody.